0: Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another exciting edition of the Wit and Whiskey cast. I am one of your two hosts this fine evening, Mark Rossetti Jr., as always, with the Robin to my Bruce Wayne, DJ Gagden. Hi, everybody. So, uh, this is going to be the beginning of the big one. Huh, DJ, we've been talking about this for a long time. I'm really excited. We are going to dive into Prohibition and in Whiskey, and this has probably been the hardest bit of research we've done in planning and formatting and everything, not because of the topic per se, or you know, our interest in it, or our lack of interest in it, it's just there's so much shit.
1: There is, and there's so much <laughs> about cocktail history that's so apocryphal, so it's just so difficult to figure out what's crap and what's actual fact.
0: Yeah, realistically, we could do a six to eight episode mini season just on this period in history. I mean, nobody would listen. It'd be us. Yeah. But theoretically, it could be done.
1: We're going to try to restrict it to two to three episodes, but we'll see.
0: We'll see. Uh, You know, we got a lot of history to get through today. Uh, It's a lot more interesting than you might think, I swear. But before we get into that,
1: what would you do this week, buddy? Uh, It's been a really good week. Uh, We... We had a pretty good weekend. Uh, It it was a little nerve-wracking because my sister-in-law gave birth this weekend. I did see that. Congratulations. You're an uncle now. I am. Yeah, it's the first of the next generation uh, born in my family, like, across all of our, like, the grandkids. Like, this is the first great-grandkid for my grandparents, so... Um, yep, yeah, my, my niece was born at 10.30 last night uh, on the 23rd, as we're rec- recording this on the 24th. Um, and uh, she, she's a little bit early, but not, not terribly early. She's definitely not a preemie. Um, but, you know, it, mom and dad are exhausted, of course. Uh, <laughs> it's my, my baby brother had the, the first kid. So the, the youngest of my generation had the, the first kid, which is really fun. Well, hey, uh, the pressure's off you and Holly now. You bought yourself a few more years. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, so, so that'll be fun. We've uh, uh, I, I've been assured by my brother that he has uh, appropriately booped her little nose. So that. Well, that, I would hope so. Yeah. But how about you, buddy?
0: Uh, we've been you know running around uh, getting ready for X, Y, and Z. We had our well, they call it the summer party, but it's really the end of summer party for the car club. Over the weekend, that was a lot of fun. We did some work-related events and things. I'm excited now. I have, a, I have new pipes. I uh, purchased three pipes from an estate sale uh, down south. And uh, the United States Postal Service has finally delivered them to me. So they are upstairs undergoing their cleaning treatment, mm. uh, which involves many, many steps, but uh, also involves big doses of Everclear as well. <laughs> because nothing kills everything quite like Everclear. So I'm excited about that. I'll have uh, quite literally doubled my arsenal. I'll be going from three to six. And one of them is pretty cool. It's very giant. It basically looks like somebody just hollowed out a log and put a mouthpiece on it. Wow. So I, I'm very excited for those going forward. And, you know, then it was just doing doing research on this. Uh, been doing a lot of reading on Prohibition. Been doing a lot of reading... Uh, On a few other topics, just trying to bang through a couple of books because, you know, uh, we mentioned last week I'm going to be reviewing those grants. So they came in. So I have 11 11 grant PDFs, all of which are 23 to 27 pages there or thereabouts. So it's not a big bulk of reading, but it's just... It's a lot of figures, it's a lot of government lingo, so this past week I was trying to get in a lot of fun reading before I start doing those. (laughs) That's fantastic. So, we'll move right along, because it is a packed show. What are you drinking? Now, I'm looking at the format, and I see that you've filled in what you're drinking, but there's no way that I think it is what it says it is.
1: Uh Uh-huh. It is. Uh, So... Uh, I got inspired uh, because we're doing at least a two-parter on Prohibition. And so front of the show, Ryan recommended to me um, and, and kind of highlighted the fact that there's all of these, it's kind of this rise in modern day cocktail culture of these uh, alcohol substitutes and alternatives for people who maybe have given up the drink, but want to you know, still have interesting mocktails and things. Uh, so I am reviewing a zero-alcohol gin uh, made by the Monday Company. Uh, they only have two products, so I'll be reviewing the gin tonight and the whiskey next week. And uh, it's pretty impressive. I made uh, what they're calling the Sage Sling, uh, which is two ounces of their, their zero-alcohol gin half an ounce of honey simple syrup, Uh, like two to three chopped up sage leaves and uh, an egg white, and shook it all up, made it like a standard cocktail. It's pretty interesting. I tried some of the gin on its own, and it definitely doesn't have, like, the alcohol bite, Um, but it does taste very botanical and floral, Uh, It definitely tastes like juniper and all of the other things. Uh, I'm I'm reading through the ingredients that are in uh, Monday Zero Alcohol Gin, and it's natural spring spring water, monk fruit extract, natural flavor, citric acid, a bunch of other crap, locust bean gum, natural juniper extract, natural coriander seed extract, natural cucumber extract. So it's all of these, like it seems like, what you would expect zero alcohol gin to taste like, it doesn't have the alcohol bite, so as I'm drinking it, I mean I'm getting mostly the the honey syrup and the sage um and it's you know with the the egg white in it it's got you know that it's kind of like a pisco sour or something like that that it's got that um nice like thick velvety mouth feel to it um it doesn't taste like a martini. I am drinking it in a formal martini glass, though. Well, all right, that's a start. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it doesn't—it doesn't have the bite of the alcohol, but on the back end, I'm getting all of the the juniper and all of the botanicals, which is really interesting because I've I've never tasted anything like it. Like I, this is what you would expect a zero alcohol gin to taste like, but. it it can't really be compared exactly to gin and it has no other comparison. So I I think it's interesting. I think I would have cut the sugar back a little bit more um, just to kind of offset the fact that there's no alcohol bite to it. Um, But other than that, it's, it's a pretty interesting substitute. So if you're, Somebody who now stays away from uh, alcohol, and, you know, as we're talking about prohibition today, uh, if you want to try out one of these, I'd, I recommend it. It's a pretty good substitute. I haven't tried the whiskey yet. Well, we'll review that next week.
0: I don't recommend Googling monk fruit. They're pretty terrifying. Oh, yeah. No, uh, monk fruit's terrible. Because uh, I was very curious myself. You know, you bring up an interesting point about overall, it tastes about what you think, but it's a little different. I do wonder how much of that is a mental thing. And I only bring it up because I love Dr. Pepper. I'm a big <laughs> Dr. Pepper guy. Drink. I don't drink a lot of soda, but nine times out of ten when I drink soda, it's Dr. Pepper. And they recently came out with sugar-free Dr. Pepper. And they've been hyping it and hyping it and hyping it, and I was out somewhere, and I said, oh, you know, I should try this because I'm a pretty fat guy, and if this is any way decent, you know, it'll probably be better for me not have all that sugar. It tasted good for what it tasted like. But
1: Mm -hmm. I don't know
0: what it tasted like because what it tasted like was not Dr. Pepper. Yeah. It had its own flavor that was fine. And I mean, it was a a suitable drink. If you put it in a glass and handed it to me, I would drink it. But so I just wonder if that's a mental thing. If we're just like, oh, this can't be the same thing because it's missing X.
1: Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because I remember growing up And like the big debate always was, you know, uh, do you drink because you like the flavor? Do you drink because you, you like how it makes you feel and it helps you relax? And I mean, when you first, when you first start drinking like hard liquors, you're not drinking that shit for flavor. Truth. you, You can develop a palate for gin and for vodka and for rum and for whiskey over time but, you know, if you're twenty-one and you're drinking whiskey for the first time, you're not drinking that shit because you love the the I don't know, the coal filtered taste of Jack Daniels. No, you're drinking it to get drunk. Um so this kind of like it, it goes in the extreme opposite end of things. If you like something that's botanical flavored, um I mean, I don't know anything non-alcoholic that uses juniper. Like, I've never seen a flavored water that's been juniper-flavored. I've never seen a milkshake or a smoothie that had juniper in it. Like, there is kind of that gin is one of those very few things that uses juniper berries. And so I'm drinking this, and, like, my head is going, it's gin, it's gin, it's gin, but it's, like, it's not alcoholic. So I guess if you if you like the idea of drinking botanicals and drinking juniper, the taste of juniper, this is probably perfect for you if you don't want to get drunk. Um, I've seen a lot more companies doing things like this, and I haven't tried any of them. Uh, I know Seedlip is a really common one. That, that's another company that's making... Like alcohol substitutes, but the idea of the zero alcohol gin is you're supposed to be able to swap it in for uh, a- any anywhere you would use gin, which is pretty interesting. I didn't try making a martini or or like a G and T with it, but I th- now I see that would be would a work. fun experiment
0: because now obviously after two or three somebody would notice. Mm-hmm. But if you were to make one, just the first one with it, like especially a G and T or something. And give it to them.
1: Would anyone notice? I think so. And and I only say that because like alcohol has a bite to it, right? Like even if we're not talking about a super smoky or, 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 you know, scotch or a, you know, a rye with that pepper bite. Like there is an alcohol palate and this does, it doesn't go down like alcohol does. It's going down like uninfused water.
0: Well, there you go. We have a first here on the W and W. Our first alcohol substitute. Not opposed to the idea necessarily, but they all need better names. Monday is a terrible day. <laughs> Seed Lips is just a terrifying slasher movie villain. They just—they need better brand names.
1: Yeah, I, I think I think this whole thing definitely has some legs to it. Um, you know, especially I, I could definitely see this uh, being a great way for. Um, like, maybe alcoholics to go out with friends and be able to enjoy something that's kind of craft but isn't alcoholic. Um, The thing I did find interesting about Monday, and the last thing I'll say here, is that uh, the Zero Alcohol Gin and Vodka is made in a distillery. Okay. That's Uh, interesting. Yeah, and I definitely, like, I'm now just morbidly curious how they make this because it does not taste distilled but it also like it's not sweet at all it definitely like you take a sip of just the gin and it tastes like an unalcoholic gin there's no sweetness to it there's no it doesn't it it does taste a little watery but i think that's probably because there's no bite to the alcohol (laughs) so that's fair yeah i i would recommend trying it out if, if you get a chance
0: I'll have to keep my eyes peeled for
1: that. What about you, buddy?
0: Well, uh, we had one first already. We had a zero alcohol review. We're going to have another first, at least for me. I think it might be our first overall, though. Our first review sample we were sent. So in the interest of full disclosure, this was provided to the Witten Whiskey Cast for free in order to review. And this is uh, from our friends at the Nomad Distillery in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. I reviewed their corn whiskey earlier in uh, the series here. And if you remember correctly, I enjoyed that quite a bit. Although it was a weird uh, sensation on the palate. You know, it smelled like buttered corn, but it tasted like whiskey, like straight whiskey. And then it was completely clear. And it was just kind of a mindfuck. Well, they have sent me a little nip of their signature liqueur, as they refer to it as. The tapped maple flavored whiskey. And it must so, be amazing because it's maple, right? Well, we'll get to it. Let's go through the stats first. It's, uh, the mash bill is primarily corn. They use the 91-proof uh, corn whiskey as the base. So it's so primarily a corn whiskey mash bill. Has no uh, age statement on it whatsoever. It's 70-proof, so it's a little softer. They, you know, they back off the corn whiskey a little bit more. It also contains uh, maple syrup, Pennsylvania maple syrup, and fresh vanilla. And they are very proud of the fact that it contains no artificial flavors, sweeteners, or colors. And the colors part is interesting because it is a dark brown. I mean, if you look at it, if you look at the bottle on their website, it looks almost like you're looking at a beer bottle. Mm. Like, it is a properly dark brown. Wow. And it is another palette. Mixer-upper. When you smell it, it doesn't really smell like anything different. It smells like whiskey. Uh, when you take a sip, though, you get just slammed in the face with maple syrup. I mean, it is liquid breakfast in a can. Or bottle, in this case. And then that smooths off, and you get a hint of the vanilla, and then you get that lingering corn whiskey taste from the 91-proof Although, since it's not 91 proof, since it's only 70 proof, it doesn't burn. Mm. So, it's literally, you know, if you're having pancakes and grits for breakfast, that's what this tastes like. Wow. It's not terrible, but I definitely like the 91 proof better. (laughs) And I'm definitely going to drink that over this. I know this is their signature drink. This is the one that they make their money on, but... It's just not for me. You would probably like it, though. You love maple syrup. I do. I have been known to drink nip bottles occasionally. (laughs) So uh, next time I order my corn whiskey, I'll order another nip, and it might end up in New Hampshire. (laughs) That'd be awesome. But no, Nomad Distillery, good friend of the show, and uh, the next thing on the list is the Noble Bourbon. I have to try that. I've tried the ninety-one corn. I've tried the tap. The next is the Noble Bourbon, which is a, a properly me drink. It's named after me, anyway. I like it. So. <laughs> noble.
1: <laughs> nah.
0: All right. What are we doing now? Whiskey news? Yeah, yeah.
1: Tell us some stuff.
0: Oh God, this has been. You know, this has been in the news for maybe about the past two or three weeks. I've been avoiding it. Just because it's uh, proof that every day we stray further from God. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we're short on time this week. We got a lot to get in, so I'm just going to touch on the high points. Coors, Mol- Molson Coors, the Coors Brewing Company, is making a whiskey. Uh, I've been checking to the east to look for the Four Horsemen. They're not here yet. Uh, it is going to be what they are calling a premium whiskey. Oh, I'm sorry, an ultra-premium whiskey. Uh, it's going to retail for 59.99 a bottle. It's going to be Five Trail Unbroken Spirit. And it's the first uh, brand from the newly incorporated Coors Whiskey Company, based out of Golden, Colorado. Um, they claim that it marries Colorado provenance, which they're not using that word correctly, with innovative distilling techniques of pioneering Kentucky-based distillers. Um, and supposedly it's going to be the first in a series of additional, limited edition whiskeys to come from Coors' exclusive high country, Barley. Uh, and they also claim that Coors is looking to appeal to buyers who want prestige in their liquor. And I can't read anymore because I'm just laughing too hard. I mean, this is just... <laughs> Uh according to the company, Coors beer fans have a built-in affinity for whiskey that's produced by a brewery. I, I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, the I'm looking to actually see where they're going to sell it, because it's only going to be in a couple of states. Because if you remember correctly, Coors Light was only in a couple of states until very, very recently. Mm-hmm. Um, that's about their hard seltzer that I don't really care about.
1: Is Coors Light the one that has the mountain that turns blue if it is cold? It did. I don't know if they still do. I cannot
0: drink Coors Light because Coors Light is interesting in that uh, if I drink one can of it, I instantly get a splitting headache. Oh God! There is just something in their terrible, terrible, terrible. Beer that just kills me. Oh, yes. It's only going to be in four states. Colorado, Nevada, Georgia, and New York. Good
1: riddance. Y'all can have it.
0: <laughs>
1: That's whiskey news. Amazing. What are we doing for Tools of the Trade? Uh, so, for Tools of the Trade this week, I thought I would continue with some more obscure um, bar tools. And, you know, part of a lot of craft cocktails is some some sort of citrus peel. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about, like, citrus peelers and channel knives today. So uh, generally when you are, uh, you know, let's use, like, the old-fashioned as a good example. It's it's garnished with a uh, an orange twist, usually. And when I do an old-fashioned, I like to get a nice, big, thick uh, peel. Uh, some people like to do... Uh, coins. Some people like to do a thinner one. Uh, I for martinis, if I garnish with like lemon peel, I like to do a nice thin thin one, and that's you know I, I'd use a channel knife for that. So uh, there's really three different ways you can you can get peel off of a citrus fruit. One is if you're really skilled with a paring knife, just use a paring knife. Um, but with you know craft cocktails, they tend to want. Uh, they tend to call for fancier appeals and, and different ways of, of spiraling it and doing all sorts of fancy shit. Um, so that's why things like channel knives exist. So, so I would kind of say you've got your your like uh, I don't know Mark style. I only want one tool in my damn bar. I you have a parent your of Swiss <laughs> Army channel knife, <laughs> yeah. And then you've got like your fancy channel lives and the other end, and peelers are kind of in the middle. And when you're shopping for a cocktail peeler, uh, I generally recommend that people buy, instead of buying the straight peelers that you might use on like potatoes, uh, I recommend getting the Y peelers where it's, it's horizontal. Uh, the, the, it's not in a line with your thumb. It's, it's perpendicular. And the reason with that is that you can get some good, even pressure and you can get a nice long peel out of it instead of, you know, trying to chip it off the damn orange the whole time. Uh, And then you can use a paring knife once you've got it off the orange to shave off some of the white pith. You can cut it into fancy shapes. You can do some... uh, I'm pretty sure I've seen a swan made out of an orange peel floating in an old-fashioned before. You can do some fancy shit with with peels. Which you just
0: have too much free time if you're doing yeah. that shit. If you, if you ever carve a swan into a drink, I don't care where you work, what you do, if you have that much free time, come to my house. I have shit for you
1: to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then channel knives are... Um, they look kind of strange. It, it looks like a very short knife and it usually has a point on the end that you can use for like prying things out of peels and things. But it's got... A uh, channel that's sharpened, and you drag the channel across the the orange, the lemon, the lime, and it, it kind of tumbles out with this nice long thin uh, peel that sh- that kind of spirals a little bit if you do it right. And the idea there is that it's already kind of spiraled. You can spiral it all around your finger, pull it above the drink, it expresses the oils. You can drop it in; it looks fancy. Uh, and channel knives are pretty pretty nice for that. I recommend getting one that has um, a zester on the other side uh, because there are some cocktails that call for zest and you want to, like, hammer the zest in in the shaker. Uh, I find that the channel knives that come with the zester on the other side, it's the one that has, like, four or five little holes in a row, and those take the zest off in big enough pieces that a strainer can catch them. So that way you don't have to end up drinking tiny pieces of pith. Um, so I, I definitely recommend a channel knife. They, they're pretty sweet. You can get some fancy ones, uh, that have like a paring knife built into it that have the zester built on. Um, if you're going to go for a peeler, definitely go for a Y peeler. You can get those pretty cheaply. Uh, yeah, I saw some pretty nice ones that you can get in like a three or four pack. Uh, and then a, a good solid sharpened paring knife is always a good idea to have to, chop up small pieces of fruit or you can um the the peeler and the channel knife don't really lend themselves to cutting up a coin and coins are really good for expressing and doing some fancy shit like when i toast the oils and then express it through a match to kind of get a little fireball going so I, i recommend having all three but you can certainly just start with a paring knife and go go from there Coins, of course, are also useful to purchase drinks as
0: well, if you don't well, that, feel like having to make one yourself. That too. I'm sorry, I had to.
1: <laughs> lame. It was lame, but it was right there. I had it, to take it. It was. Mark, I'm, uh, I'm noticing like two or three pages of notes here. Well, if you remember at the end of the last episode, I asked if you were taking me off the leash. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: And you were a little hesitant, but then you said yes. Uh, Don't worry, a lot of these are going to be quick hits. (laughs) Uh, This is episode one on Prohibition. We're going to talk about the history, and we're going to talk about some cocktail culture before Prohibition. Yes. So, uh, you know... And I should specify, we're going to talk about the history, except for arguably the fun part. We're not going to talk about the criminal element. We're not going to talk about bootlegging and speakeasies and rum running and the Al Capone and the big supervillains. That's going to be next week. That's going to be part two. This is just going to be your basic high school 101 on Prohibition. Yeah. So, buckle up. So, basically, the run up to Prohibition, this didn't happen in a vacuum. Nothing happens in a vacuum. It wasn't like all of a sudden in you know, 1919, oh, no, liquor's bad. This has been going on for quite some time. Uh, as early as even before we were a country, when we were still in English colony, we actually had laws regarding uh, sale of alcohol to Native Americans, more specifically prohi- uh, prohibiting it, obviously. Er- the earliest form of prohibition was the uh, sale of alcohol to Native Americans, For a number of reasons, Uh, you know, tolerance levels and just, you know, out-and-out racism. We don't want them to have it. It's something that's ours. A little bit later on, once we were America, the first Temperance Association first formed. It formed in Connecticut in 1789. Remember what state it formed in? This becomes a little bit funny later on. And basically, a Temperance Association is... A lot like a super PAC today, I guess, in politics, only, you know, smaller and on the state level. But their one cause, their big political movement, was prohibition. Just, you know, outlawing alcohol and saving the family and all of the evils. Likewise, two years later in 1791, just outside of Carlisle, a bunch of uh, Pennsylvania farmers went up against George Washington and the Continental Army in the Whiskey Rebellion because they didn't want to pay taxes on their liquor. But this was another thing that sort of had people talking, like, eh, wait a minute, if a bunch of hayseed farmers tried briefly, and very unsuccessfully, but tried to you know, go up against the government here over whiskey, eh, maybe this isn't something we want to play with. Mm. Of course, we had bigger issues going on at the time. We were ratifying the Constitution. We had Washington's presidency... Uh, Then we have Adams, Jefferson, the development of political parties, into the War of 1812, yada, yada, yada. So the next major step is not until 1826, and that was the formation of the American Temperance Society. So now you have a nationwide organization. Really, this is the, the closer analogy to a super PAC today, and they're taking out ads in every newspaper, which was the big thing at the time. They're sending out speakers. They have uh, people in the street handing out flyers. They have posters banged up. You know, come to the theater and see so-and-so talk from the American Temperance Society. And they're talking about the evils of alcohol, mm. just how it's destroying America. And this is already in 1826. saw uh, up by you, it saw Maine completely outlaw liquor. <laughs> all, all types of alcohol in 1850 uh, did not last. <laughs> The main law uh, was repealed in 1856, so it only lasted six years. But the main laws it became uh, known as spawned 12 other states across the country to try prohibition. None of them lasted for any real period of time except for one, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. As you might imagine, uh, temperance movements, prohibition movements, they almost completely disappeared during the Civil War. Hmm. We had a little bit bigger problem going on, and of course, as we know, alcohol, in particular whiskey, was used as a crude uh, anesthetic, Mm -hmm. so nobody was really complaining about it then. 1869 sees the birth of the National Prohibition Party, so now we have an actual national—I hesitate to call it a third party because we didn't have the entrenched two-party system that we know of today— Third parties actually uh, had varying levels of success throughout the 19th century. But today we would consider it a third party running solely on a platform of prohibition. And they're trying to get people elected both on the state level, the federal level, but also locally as well. Dry towns, dry counties, that sort of thing. We're going to run people for mayor. We're going to run people for judge and for sheriff all the way up to Congress. Uh, 1972 sees the Women's Christian Temperance Movement, the WCTM. And if you read a lot of books about prohibition, you see them come up a lot. They basically take over from a lot of these other groups. They become the biggest and most annoying, shall we say, (laughs) if you're a a wet, if you're a pro-alcohol person, the most annoying group. And they brought in two key pieces that we'll talk about in a moment, uh, they were primarily female, and they brought in the religious element. Yeah, I mentioned that most of the states uh, that passed their version of the main Law didn't last. One that was interesting was Kansas. In 1881, Kansas amended their state constitution to completely outlaw liquor sales. Mm-hmm. And this one lasted a little while, although it was challenged several times. And one of those challenges went all the way up to the Supreme Court in 1887, it was Muggler versus Kansas, which is just a great name for anything. It'd be a good movie. Uh, you know, just pioneer Muggler taking on Kansas. <laughs> but uh, in Muggler versus Kansas, the Supreme Court actually ruled not only that Kansas could justify prohibiting the sale of alcohol, but that their reasoning for doing so, they held up. They were staunch arguments, you know, talking about the economic benefits, talking about uh, the reduction in abuses and crimes and uh, absenteeism, and a few other things we'll talk about later on. And it was an eight to one decision of the Supreme Court. It was almost unanimous. Holy crap. So that solidified the f- notion that states could outlaw liquor. And, uh, you know, throughout American history, especially. Before, during, and immediately after the Civil War, you do see this jockeying before the federal government and the state government. Uh, So there's still no mechanism for the federal government to come in, but the precedent had been set that a state could outlaw it and it would be legal.
1: Hmm.
0: Uh, And the immediate run-up to it, of course, it was the 18th Amendment that eventually led to Prohibition, but most temperance groups also supported the 17th Amendment and the 19th Amendment. Now, D.J., a little history 101. what, What did the 17th Amendment do? The 17th Amendment uh, passed the federal income tax. Okay. It it changed the tax code, and temperance groups were for that because they said, well, you're going to make up all that money that you lose taxing liquor and taxing beer, uh, and you can get it back from the income tax. And then the 19th Amendment, DJ, I know you know this one. Is that women voting? That is women's suffrage. And since women were the biggest proponents of temperance, a lot of the male temperance leaders basically said, hey, you scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. So you see a lot of these temperance groups, they all supported the 17th, 18th, and 19th Amendments all in a row. We were very big into amending the Constitution, not more than 100 years ago. Uh, We don't do it much anymore, and we can argue or not whether that was good or or bad, but we did it a lot more back then.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, 1916, the federal election that Woodrow Wilson eventually won to become president, both candidates completely ignored the issue. It was a very close election, and both of them were just like, huh, what? Prohibition, never heard of it. What are you talking about? I'm over here. I don't don't know enough about that question to answer it. (laughs) And it was smart because it would have probably swayed voters one way or the other. So that takes us to the run-up to Prohibition. So you had all that, but what were the main driving forces? What were the main uh, sides that were at odds with one another? Well as we already mentioned it was gender based uh, it was often men versus women some of these groups uh the the women's Christian temperance movement was a big one a few of the other ones they had on the bottom end thirty five percent female membership and on the high end sixty to sixty five percent
1: and you have to oh, what, go what, ahead. Was, what was the driver behind there being like are are you saying like there was more female membership generally far more yes so so what was the like why was there a gender divide? Well, there was a gender divide, uh, because you had
0: saloon culture at the time was very interesting. And this is something else we could do an entire episode on, not even getting into speakeasies or anything, but the saloons at the time were very blue collar working class establishments. And they were for the manly men who worked in the big cities and factories. And, you know, you could have your hand ripped off at any minute in a, sewing machine or you know a thresher or whatever wherever you worked a mill and it was interesting because you would get a free sandwich with your beer and the sandwich would often be uh, stuffed with salted meats and of course the salt would make you thirstier so you'd drink more and you know you'd get your small pay envelope at the end of the week and you'd go down to the saloon and you'd drink with your friends and you'd eat these sandwiches and then you'd come home and there wouldn't be a lot of money left And women were not, they weren't outright banned from these locations, but they certainly were not welcome. Hmm. Uh, Drinking in public up until Prohibition, but especially in the late 1800s, was considered the most macho, manly, barrel-chested, hairy, Daniel Boone thing you could do. I mean, if you pulled out a flask just on the street and took a hit, like, well, that dude's nuts. We're not going to screw with him. I don't know why. I mean, it seems dumb to us today. Yeah. But that's just the way it was. And so that was a big thing. You also had the fact that the men were never home. And so, uh, you know, they were never helping out with any of the housework. They were never helping out with any of the child rearing. It was considered women's work at the time. But this is when this is all starting to change. This is when the progressive era is starting to come in. And so we're starting to realize, like, hey, you know, women are people too. <laughs> yes, and yes, they If they, they, they want to have, like, a job and not just stay home and do laundry all day, maybe we should let them. And so uh, women are becoming more outspoken, rightfully so. The, the suffrage movement is going on parallel to this, as we already talked about. The women's labor movement is going on parallel to this. And this is just another thing for women to put their foot down and go, no, this is, you know, Bullshit. We don't want to deal with this. You come home drunk every fifth day and beat, beat up the kids and you beat me and just, no. So that was a big part of it. A big part of it was urban versus rural. Um, mm. If you were living in a city, you were much more likely to be pro liquor because you have the saloons, you have the social gatherings. Uh, the next thing below it, uh, likewise, if you live in a city, you're more than likely to be an immigrant oftentimes. You know, you have so many waves of evidence coming, working in the mines, working in the mills, working in the factories. And you look at the Irish, you look at the Italians, the Scotch. They all, you know, they're drinking culture. I mean, I'm an Italian. We always had wine on the table. I mean, it was just, there always was liquor somewhere. Whereas if you were a quote-unquote native, and this is sort of where the whole waspy uh, culture comes from, the movie gets a lot wrong, but if you want a good overall look at immigrants versus wasps watch gangs in new york it's one thing that they just nailed oh wow uh you know you get this sort of native you know i'm an american i was born here i'm not one of these you know wretched people and i wear a fine suit and i can't be seen with the likes of you in the saloon and If I choose to partake in alcohol, it will be in controlled moderation with other white Anglo-Saxon individuals like myself. Whereas we immigrants were just like, hey, you want a party? I got a bottle. Let's go. And so it really was the, what direction is America going to go in? You also had religious motivations. Interestingly enough, despite myself included... Catholics, being some of the most uproarious drunks you've ever seen, almost every religion universally was against this, but was against alcohol. They were all for prohibition. Uh, uh, Jewish rabbis were were you know this oh only for services. The Catholic Church came out of it only communion wine, nothing else. Obviously, the Church of Latter Day Saints was against it. You know that's part of their teachings. Uh, Methodists were against it as well. Methodists don't drink. So you see all these groups coming out against it. And religion was still a very big part of American life at the time. So that had quite a bit of influence. You also had the fact that there was an insanely high consumption rate at the time. Yeah. Uh, The average American... Now, I want you to stop and think about this, DJ. The average American which means that includes every man, woman, and child in America in 1830, drank 1.7 bottles of hard liquor a week. Jesus. Now, obviously, the kids aren't drinking any. (laughs) Most of the women are drinking less than half that if they drink at all. So how many is Joe Blow on the street drinking? To put that into perspective, I couldn't find the numbers for 2020, but I found the numbers for 2000. 1.7 bottles per American is seven times what it was in 2000. Jesus. Just to put that into perspective. Uh, Likewise, the last thing uh, that really helped push it was World War I. Now, obviously, prohibition didn't come into effect until World War I was over. But as I said, some of the biggest opposition voices were immigrants, German immigrants, Italian immigrants, Hungarian immigrants, Austrian immigrants, they get real quiet during World War I because they don't want to get persecuted. We did not have uh, concentration camps or anywhere near the program that we ended up doing to the Japanese and the Germans in World War II, but there was a lot of hate crimes. There was a lot of rioting. There was a lot of violence. Um, St. Conrad's, all of a sudden in 1917, you notice in the... Uh, club minutes, they go to English and oh hey, we can't talk German anymore, just we're an American club now, everybody be quiet likewise we start rationing things, we start taking things, we need all the grain surplus, the barley, the rye no more for beer consumption, we need it now for the war effort it's also where you start to see experiments with rice and beer, which is still with us today, but that all comes from World War I rationing, so they start to realize if we're not making all this beer, we have all this extra grain as well so that led into 1917. By after the 1916 election, Congress had a, quote, unquote, dry majority in both houses. And it was a much different time back then. Uh, by December, you know, Congress didn't sit until March. And by December of that same year, they had a resolution for an amendment that was passed to all of the states.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> didn't even take a year. Uh, the amendment became ratified on January 16th of 1919 when Nebraska became the 36th state to approve it. So it took a little over two years to become ratified. The two of the 48 states at the time outright rejected it, Rhode Island and Connecticut, which is interesting because they had the very first temperance association. Amazing. Now, contrary to popular belief, the amendment did not actually outlaw the sale of liquor. It merely provided the government a legal shield to do it. The actual law was the Volstead Act, and that did not become passed until October 28, 1919, and did not go into effect until January 17, 1920. So keep this in mind. The amendment becomes ratified on January 16th, 1919, and it's a full year and a day later, very medieval, that the law doesn't go into effect. So keep that in mind. At the time that it went into effect, uh, the government was so sure they were going to enforce it, DJ, they had a whole 1,520 new federal prohibition police. (laughs) Still makes me laugh. Uh, because you had that year and a day, people were stockpiling liquor like it was the end of the world. People were buying all the beer, all the liquor. They were converting their cellars into wine cellars. They were stashing bottles in every section of the house. Because contrary to public, uh, contrary to what everybody thinks, it didn't prohibit you from necessarily possessing or consuming it. They grandfathered in all the old stuff, and you could still make... In your home, very small quantities of wine and some fruit liquors and beers and things. You couldn't make anything hard, but you could still homebrew some very small quantities of certain drinks for your own consumption. So, you know, much like Kennedy, just before he sent – but just before he signed the embargo with Cuba, Kennedy got something like 10,000 Cuban cigars flown on a plane. And then when it landed in uh, Florida, then that was when he signed the embargo – People knew this was coming. There was such a run on liquor. It was ridiculous. Uh, drug stores began selling quote unquote medicinal wine, which usually ran in the range of 22 to 30% alcohol by volume. <laughs> and they often sold fruit concentrates, and they had um, different grape pulp blocks and things. And they were hysterical because they would have warning labels on them. And the warning labels would say, don't do the following steps in the following order. <laughs> because if you do, you're going to make wine and that's illegal.
1: <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah.
0: Within six months, over 75,000 licenses were issued to doctors to be able to prescribe liquor for medicinal purposes. Uh, Winston Churchill had a medicinal liquor prescription of course he did over the course of prohibition doctors made an estimated 40 to 50 million selling liquor scripts to put that into perspective running it through the inflation calculator it's over 700 million dollars today why did churchill have one well he was a uh, delegate to america but he was still subject to their laws oh he was here he was living here at the time interesting His script, it's actually in the the museum over in England. His script was for an unlimited amount. He could buy as much as he wanted every week. (laughs) Of course he could. I just want to know how much he paid his doc. But I've seen seen a picture of it. It's funny. So, yeah, so that was it. You know, it was corrupt right from the beginning. So the quote-unquote enforcement and repeal as we come through the end here, the enforcement of it was very difficult, almost impossible. I mean, there were so many loopholes you could... It's much like marijuana today. You could possess it, but you could only possess so much. You could make it, but you could only make so much, and it had to be for personal use, so you couldn't distribute it, you couldn't sell it. Many states, much like marijuana today, simply said, you know what? This is a federal law. The feds can enforce it. We're not. Uh, New York and Maryland were the two biggest. Uh, Right here in Wilkes-Barre, where the 1821 studios are, Mayor Hart, he won four terms in a row because... Not only did he not enforce it, he ran a speakeasy, and he was proud of it.
1: That's amazing.
0: (laughs) He ran on the campaign of, you vote for me, you'll have booze. Won four terms in a row. That's a fact. Uh, Oftentimes, religious groups led by priests and rabbis basically rounded up vigilante posses and just went to speakeasies and smashed up barrels and attacked people that had drinks, and they were really the enforcement In different parts of the country early on, unfortunately, the KKK actually became very big in enforcing it because it was part of their anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant belief system. You know, those are two of the biggest groups that are still drinking. So the KKK would go around and sort of be the legal arm of
1: prohibition, although that didn't last very long. This might be a naive question. The KKK is anti-Catholic? Yes. Are they still anti-Catholic? Have they always been anti-Catholic?
0: They've been anti-Catholic for a good portion of their history because, again, it goes to the white
1: Anglo-Saxon Protestant beliefs that this uh, country... okay. It's the Protestant it, thing I was missing. Yeah. Okay. Uh,
0: I, I don't know if they currently are or they aren't. Uh, I can look that up and report back to you, though. But at the time, very much so. Although by about 1926, 1927, they really faded off because by then the writing was on the wall and most people were not happy with Prohibition. So it yeah. wasn't a popular stance uh over the course of it on average state and local governments lost 14 percent of their entire tax revenue (laughs) which is just massive Mm -hmm. Um, the election of 1932 this often gets overlooked the election of 1932 was fdr for his first term now obviously the country is in shambles you have the great depression uh the economy's down They're not making any of that money during the Great Depression. They can't tax any of this liquor that's not there to try to get themselves out of the Depression. So what really gets lost in this is one of Roosevelt's major planks was he said flat out, I'm going to repeal it. Mm. And nobody talks about that anymore.
1: Did did the Great Depression and Prohibition start around the same time? Uh, Prohibition was first. Great Depression started
0: October 29th, 1929 with the stock market crash. Although really, 1930, 1931 is really when the heavy economic fallout happened. the The end of '29 was still kind of up and down, up and down, up and down.
1: But so, how, how much of the Great Depression was directly attributed to Prohibition? I would say very
0: little was directly attributed to it. There's the stock market at the time and the way the government was funding things, and more importantly, the fact that um, banks could just close oh, <laughs> and, and say, oh yeah, all that money you have in the bank? No, sorry, we're closed. You, you don't get it. We're out of business. There's no money. Sorry. Those were the major things, but prohibition definitely contributed to it going on and on because there was just no other places to draw from. You can't tax, you know, you have the federal income tax, but you have a 20% unemployment rate, people aren't making money, so you can't tax that. People aren't really buying goods, you can't sell that. Okay, well, we're going to tax the distillers. Oh, well, we can't, because we banned that. <laughs> Ooh. So, I would say it contributed very little to its starting, but it certainly helped prolong it. Woof. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Just to uh, wrap that up. Yeah, so, uh, Roosevelt ran on... a. Thing, I'm just going to flat out repeal it. He gets elected in '32, takes office in March of '33. That same month, he signs the Cole-Harrison Act, which allowed beer. So now we can have beer in America again. Uh, and that's what set the percentage at 3.2, which still, if you buy any classic American beer, such as Coors Light that we talk about today, um, it's all 3.2% alcohol. Uh, unless you get some of the micro-brews nowadays. But that was all from Prohibition. And then it was repealed on December fifth, 1933, when Utah, of all states, became the 36th state to ratify the 21st Amendment. And another interesting thing is the 21st Amendment, just like the, 19, or the 18th Amendment, rather, did not all of a sudden, day one, ban all alcohol, the 21st did not instantly make it legal everywhere. It made it a state's choice. It put the power back into the states. And Mississippi, for example, remained a completely dry state until 1966. That's crazy. So, uh, just wrapping up, because I know I've been rambling, uh, the effects of it are interesting. Overall health in America improved, actually, and life expectancy slightly went up. Liver disease and heart disease plummeted. Absenteeism at work dropped from an average of around 10, 11% to only 3%. Hmm. People were not getting drunk and calling off. (laughs) That being said, it wasn't all good news. Prohibition cost the U.S. economy about $225 million per year in 1920s money, which is about $3.5 billion per year today. The enforcement of it by the end was costing the government $26.5 million a year, which is $413 million today. So you're basically losing about $4 billion a year by the end, which when you're in the Depression was just insane. Uh, The one nice thing, though, uh, is that the death of the 19th century saloon and the rise of the flapper during Prohibition both made female drinking much more acceptable, uh, which was, you know, nice, as it should be. Mm. And while alcohol consumption had dropped to a mere quarter of 1919 levels... In the early parts, because people by and large, people actually did follow Prohibition at first.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it dropped to a quarter of its level by 1930, it had come back to about 70%. So in the end, it only dropped uh, consumption by about 25 to 30 percent at the cost of you know four and a half billion a year. Interesting. So that is Prohibition 101. <laughs> Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Uh, (laughs) We will talk about the crime and everything next week.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. I I did a a little bit of the history uh, exploration too because I was looking up the cocktail side of things and I found two interesting facts about prohibition that had nothing to do with crime. Uh, The first one was that pre-prohibition, drinking was something that happened throughout the day. Yes, it, like you would start with a drink with breakfast. You'd have you you t- top off at lunch. You'd have an afternoon drink. You'd have something with dinner. You'd have uh, an evening cocktail. And after Prohibition was the rise of you know you wait until after work. You you wait until five o'clock, and, and I thought that was interesting. Like it, it's interesting to kind of pair that with the statistic of drinking only dropped down thirty percent because, uh, like we've basically just concentrated a day's worth of drinking. We've cut it down by, you know, 30% and dropped it all to the evening.
0: Yeah, and, you know, and it does kind of explain those, the 1.7 bottle a person, too. Because if you're sipping on it all throughout the day, it's like, okay, that makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. Uh, That is the great crime of coffee heads like me. Before coffee took over as the breakfast drink of choice, it was beer. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. You woke, you woke up in the morning and you had a beer.
1: Uh, the other interesting fact I, I found, because the question I asked was, well, what happened? What happened to these these drinking establishments? What happened to the distilleries and the breweries? Because I was looking into what what was co- what was drinking culture like before, during, and after. And you know, we'll, we'll talk about speakeasies and crap next time, but. The the one interesting fact I found was the rise of the soda fountain and the ice cream parlor. Yep. Uh, Prohibition did, like, one of the good things is it gave rise to ice cream parlors and soda fountains. And uh, I, I got this straight off of PBS. One study found that in Grand Rapids, Michigan, one-third of the saloons tried to wait out Prohibition by serving other things, One third of them closed and another third of them converted to ice cream parlors. (laughs) And I just thought that that's such a cool, like, Oh, like that, that's kind of like ice cream is a really great pastime. I mean, there's, you, you can throw a rock and hit three ice cream places in the summer around here. And it's really interesting that like we have prohibition partly to thank for the rise in popularity of, of those kinds of things. And your statistics are about roughly right for, uh, at least when it comes to
0: beer, for breweries uh, as well. Yeah. About a third of them just closed. A third of them tried to build other things. Uh, Yingling famously made ice cream, which they're starting to make again. Anheuser-Busch made caskets, which I just, that never gets old. (laughs) And then a third of them made, quote-unquote, near beers, which is basically like O'Doul's today. Mm -hmm. Alcohol-free beer. Or in the case of the uh, Lion Brewery, which is about five minutes from my house, it still makes beer to this day, they just kept making real beer and saying it was near beer. (laughs) And every so often, the feds would come in and they'd raid them, but they were making enough money selling it that they could pay the fine. (laughs) And and then finally, in in 1927 or 1928, I would have to check my notes, but they finally got shut down basically permanently, because it was like their seventh
1: offense. That's amazing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I found that stuff kind of interesting. The The other small fact that I found is that some breweries and distilleries, in order to try and, like, wait out Prohibition, just started renting out their cold rooms. Yes. So a lot of them would, would just turned into, like, warehouses to store cheese. Well, hey, we still got to eat, you know? It's true. So... Mark talked uh, about like what led up to prohibition and, and, you know, a brief history of prohibition all the way through. And I wanted to look at it from the perspective of what was drinking culture like before prohibition. And, and Mark talked a lot about, you know, the 1.7 bottles on average per week. And, and, you know, we we talked a bit about drinking throughout the day, uh, up until, and, 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 So I I actually find it really cool that Mark was talking about it right before Prohibition because I'm going to talk about it in terms of like mid to late 19th century. Um, Until the mid-19th century, Americans mostly were drinking uh, hard cider, which was about a 10% cider. Uh, They were drinking imported wine and they were drinking rum. And at the time... Uh, you know, before the mid-19th century, they they would occasionally drink what was called small beer, which was something you brewed at home, and it was like 1%. Like, it was nothing.
0: Yeah, you'll often see this listed as table beer in places. Yeah. Because you could serve it with dinner or breakfast or whatever just because it was so damn weak, even by our standards.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, up until the Civil War, that was kind of the culture. After the Civil War... Uh, corner saloons became a lot more prevalent, and then you know w- we got German brewed beer kind of came up on the rise, and we also started seeing some cocktails. And so I gathered together some pre-Prohibition cocktails for you here, and it's they're, Some of them are pretty wild. I'm excited. So uh, I found two cocktail books. Um, Now, I'm all about the cocktails. I I don't really care much for wine or for beer. I'll occasionally drink a nice glass of wine. I will occasionally have some beer and wings, but I'm all about the cocktails. So, the first published cocktail book in America uh, was in 1862, uh, and it was by this guy named Jerry Thomas, and the title is how to mix drinks or the Bon Vivant's companion. <laughs> it's just so good. That's such a great name. It, it's really good. And I did order myself a, a reprint copy so I could actually like look through and try to make some of these ridiculous cocktails. The measurements are all completely off. Cause I mean, this was 1862. So, uh, for the, the three cocktails I pulled out of this one, the first one's called a stone fence. And the recipe was one wine glass of whiskey. We're off to a bourbon. great start already. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Two to three lumps of small ice fill up the glass with sweet cider. Okay. So I'm not sure what what measurement a wine glass is, but I don't <laughs> think it's the goblets we're thinking of. <laughs> No, I imagine they're
0: probably the smaller ones we have on the back rack at Conrad's, but still that's,
1: that could be a decent pour. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And and a lot of the measurements are just like, there was a lot of punches too. So when you look at cocktail recipes, it's like two to three bottles of champagne. And I'm like, oh no, that's not (laughs) a single cocktail. (laughs) Uh, another one, a uh, fairly simple one, is called the Black Stripe. It's one wine glass of Santa Cruz rum and one tablespoon of molasses. Yes, because it's not sweet enough. <laughs> no. And then I pulled the hot milk punch, which was one tablespoon of sugar, two tablespoons of water, one wine glass of brandy, one wine glass of rum filled with hot milk, garnish with nutmeg. So you're either two-fisting or you need a proper goblet at that point. Yeah, so I'm thinking, based on this, you were pouring into a larger glass. Or a pitcher, possibly, if it's punch. Yeah. Uh, a later cocktail book that came out in 1884 was called The Complete Bartender by Albert Barnes. And uh, I'm looking for a copy of this one, too. Uh, we got uh, a cocktail called The Roman Punch, which was a tablespoon of sugar... Half a pony glass of raspberry syrup, half a wine glass of Jamaica rum, juice of a quarter of a lemon, one tablespoon of Curacao, half a wine glass of brandy, one tablespoon of port wine, fill with ice, shake well, top with fruits in season, and serve with straws.
0: Yes, so you get it like an old milkshake. You and your date can just
1: sit and sip on this. Uh, there was one, uh, I thought you would like this because it actually sounds like a precursor to an old-fashioned. All right, hit me. It's called the Whiskey Cobbler. Three dashes of raspberry syrup, a tablespoon and a half of sugar, two wine glasses of good whiskey, shake with ice and garnish with oranges, Serve with straws. Yeah, I would try that. I don't know <laughs> if I'd drink it out of a straw, but I would try <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> uh, and then the last one I got was the Hot Gin sling. Gesundheit. <laughs> one lump of sugar, one wine glass of gin, one piece of lemon peel, fill with boiling water, stir and garnish with grated nutmeg.
0: Yeah, I think that's going to be a no from me, dog.
1: Yeah. Uh, I There were so many, like, pour hot milk over this, top with boiling water. And I'm like, this is not tea. This is Gin.
0: Yeah, it's like when you read those 1950s cookbooks and they're all like, we have meat-flavored gelatin. And it's like, okay, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's yeah. just not. Uh, I found lots more cocktails, but they, they were... The, the the six basic cocktails were basically out there, you know, the highball and then the flip and the, the old-fashioned. They, they came a- around at different times, and I'll get better dates for those next time. But it, it was a lot of punches because it was a lot of, like, Entertaining in the 19th century. Um, it, it was a lot of weird hot drinks. There was like, I, the the latter one, the complete bartender, had like five different recipes for different eggnogs.
0: You must have been in your glory.
1: I was so happy. I'm, I'm reading it and I'm like, oh, that one has gin. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I have questions. Yeah. So I am going to get uh, a copy at least of the Bon Vivant's uh, companion. I do want to get a copy of the Complete Bartender. Uh, so at, at one point, I'm going. I'm planning to do a blog post where I recommend some cocktail books for for people to try out. So if th- these are any good, I'll add them to the list. I I
0: might have to pick up a copy of the Bon Vivant's companion just just to have. If we both get a copy, we could each make a drink one episode.
1: Yeah, I think that would be really fun. I I'm. I don't own molasses. Well, I
0: mean, why would
1: you? One (laughs) wine glass of rum and a tablespoon of molasses is a very simple cocktail. I am kind of curious about the stone fence, but I don't know what sweet cider is. Is it just Um, apple cider, like non-alcoholic cider?
0: It's non-alcoholic cider, but it's uh, at least around here. If you go to different orchards, they have a more tartar cider, or they have a more sweeter cider
1: oh so, okay, yeah so yeah you you would need the uh you 'd need the sweeter side that makes sense i I think that wraps up our first prohibition episode. It does. we made it we did, and we didn 't go for two hours i 'm so impressed I was trying.
0: I was motoring through some of it i mean it 's obviously literal tomes of books have been written on this topic uh people have spoken for days and days i've given lectures on this so um you know it it was hard to kind of just squeeze it all into a scratching the surface thing but that's why i thought it'd be a little bit easier if we pull
1: all the juicy bits all the crime and everything out and do that separate i agree and i i'm gonna have more cocktails next week but it's gonna be a lot more research because there is so much bullshit on the internet that is like, here's a cocktail from before Prohibition. I'm like, no, no, it's not. No, that's nothing. So, like, to actually get like Prohibition cocktails is weirdly hard because there's so, you know, e- everybody with a blog wants to think that they know what a Prohibition cocktail is. So, I- I'll find some good stuff for us next week.
0: Yeah, we'll find some decent stuff. I, if I'm feeling froggy, I might even make a cocktail. You should. You should make a Prohibition cocktail next week. Um, Allie has been after me to redo uh, we had a 20s night at the museum, I forget how long ago, and we were drinking bee's kneeses. Oh, she's so been good. after me to revisit
1: that. So perhaps, nice. perhaps. Well, until next time, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we are going to do another part of Prohibition next week. So look forward to hearing the uh, less than savory side of Prohibition when we come back together.
0: We're going to go full comic book next week because we have some legit supervillains coming up.
1: We do. Uh, if you like what you're listening to, go out and uh, pre-save us on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, uh, go give us that rating on iTunes if you think about it, that really helps us get up in the charts. Uh, we are out there on the internets uh, at the and Whiskey cast at at gmail.com if you want to recommend a whiskey or you want to say hey tell me more about all of this prohibition crap uh, we've also got the website at Uh we're out there for Spotify Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Listen Notes we're on a couple of dozen other podcast platforms we're releasing right here at 8am on Friday morning so we're, we're right there ready for you for lunch um pre martini to- lunch, if you will. Go <laughs> back to pre-prohibition days. Drink all day. <laughs> uh, we can neither uh, confirm nor deny if the Witten Whiskey cast endorses this, so please don't get us in trouble. Um, we want to <laughs> thank Nuno Henry Silva for our intro and outro music. Uh, we're going to send you to his SoundCloud and to his uh, book of short fiction in our show notes, so definitely go check that out. I think we're going to put a link up to the, uh, the Bonnevain's Compatia because the, a hardcover
0: reprint with an old-style cover is 16 bucks. Yeah. Um, and everyone should have a copy. This is literal American whiskey and cocktail history.
1: It's the first American cocktail book. you got to get it. So I think we're going to put a link to that up, too. But until we uh, come back together next week. Salud. Cheers.